Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Uh, it's good to be back after a couple of weeks away. And so if you're like brand new to Southwinds, my name is Mike, and I am one of the pastors here. And I'm glad to be with you this morning as we are continuing our study uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. You, as always, will want to get your Bibles out, open, uh, turned on, whatever you need to do. Today, we're going to be in Romans 5. Uh, verses one through five, and this is an amazing portion of God's word. So I wanna start by reading it Uh, together. You can listen um, as I read it out loud, follow along. It's gonna be on the screen. This is what the apostle Paul writes. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, and this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. amen. Well, I think uh, all of us have the experience, remember the experience of applying for a job at different times, and, and you know that when you are looking for work, you're not, you're not just looking a, to, for a particular job, you're also considering what benefits uh, that that job would come with. Not too long ago, there was this young engineer, recent graduate from Stanford University, and he, he landed this job interview, and uh, as he was talking to the HR person, they, they asked him, kind of kicking things off, so, so what's the starting salary that you are looking for? And he replied and said, oh, around 250000 a year, depending, he said, of course, on the benefits. The HR person kind of looked at him for a moment and then said, well, what would you say to this package? Five weeks paid vacation, 14 days paid holiday, full medical and dental. We will match your retirement contributions up to 50% of your salary. And we're going to lease you a brand new car every two years. Say like, I don't know, a Tesla Model X Plaid. The engineer says, wow, are you kidding? And the HR person said, Yes, of course I'm kidding, but you started it first. (laughs) Now, what Paul is talking about in our passage today and in all of Romans 5, really going beyond that in a very profound sense, is our benefits package as Christ followers. And it is way better than anything that any corporation could ever dream up. Just to kind of keep ourselves uh, in context of where we've been for four chapters, Paul has been teaching us about the most important reality in the world, and that is that God justifies sinners in Jesus Christ just by his sheer grace. For four chapters, Paul has been explaining why we need justification, and that is because we're all sinners. He's been talking about how God provides that justification, which is through Jesus' substitutionary, propitiatory death on the cross, and he's been talking about how we receive 
that justification, which is through faith alone, by grace alone. And now Paul's kind of turning a corner and he's going to start showing us how justification by faith affects us and benefits us in our lives every day. And he's particularly in our passage today going to show us how justification transforms the way that we go through suffering. You see, this is a very important thing for us to understand how well that we actually grasp the gospel, how much we truly believe it, and how much we truly understand it is always going to be demonstrated in the way that we suffer. Martin Luther said that justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It is also the doctrine on which our spiritual lives stand or fall. Now, I've told you this really many times, different times, many different ways, but every important advancement in your life spiritually as a Christ follower will always be rooted in your understanding of the gospel, in you truly grasping, getting, knowing, understanding more and more about the implications of what God has done for you in the good news. See, too many uh, Christ followers tend to think that the gospel is, is just the way we start the Christian life. And of course it is, but it is so much more. I heard someone say the gospel uh, is like a well, a well of water. And you, know, you, don't, you, you don't get the best water by just digging a, a wider hole for the well, just widening that, that, that well at the top. You get the best water, how? By digging down deeper, digging the well even deeper. And it really is that way with the gospel. See, up to this point in Romans, what Paul has primarily been doing is in explaining the gospel. And now you might say he begins to celebrate the gospel. Again, Martin Luther calls these verses the happiest verses in Romans. And maybe you're going to notice as you're reading Romans that Romans 5 kind of is a, a, a prefiguring of Romans 8. Some people call it kind of a miniature version of Romans 8. We have a lot of mountains around here in California. So I was kind of thinking Romans 5 is like the Altamont and Romans 8 is like the Sierras. You kind of get the idea, and you just kind of need to store that and keep it in mind when we get to Romans 8. And you'll notice if you read through uh, this first half of Romans 5, this word rejoice is used three times, and it's just reminding us we have so much to celebrate. In fact, why don't you just say amen right now? Amen. Don't we have so much to celebrate in Christ? Now, what Paul is going to do in our five verses today is he's going to start by focusing in verses one and two on these specific benefits. And then in verses three through five, he's gonna show us how those benefits help us as we face suffering. And there are four benefits in the first two verses that I want you to notice. And the first benefit is the one that all the others are rooted in, and it is simply this, I'm made right with God. Justification means I'm made right with God. Paul begins in verse one, therefore we since we have been justified by faith. And he begins, as he does several times in Romans, with this word, therefore. And of course, there's this truism that says whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's always referring back to something else that Paul has been saying, and that's what's happening here. If you got your Bible open, maybe you can just look and see what's the last word in Romans chapter 4. 
And if you do, you'll see it's the word justification. Paul concludes Romans 4, the last three verses, 23 to 25, by establishing that our justification is based on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He he says, in light of that, we have been justified by faith. And as we've already discussed several times in our study, to be justified means that God has declared us righteous. Sometimes we tend to limit the idea of justification to the forgiveness of our sins, and it does include that, and that is something amazing, but there is so much more in justification. Justification also means that God has declared us righteous. Despite our sin, God looks at us in Jesus Christ, and he sees us as holy and righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. See, God is a judge. And as Paul says in Romans 3, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, We're gonna see in Romans 6 that our wages of sin is death. We all deserve his, his judgment, but instead of giving us the judgment we deserve for our sin, our holy, righteous, loving God gives us his righteousness. And he bases it on what Christ has accomplished for us. It is a righteousness Righteousness that includes forgiveness for my sins in the past, for my sins in the present, and also any sin I'll commit in the future. And that is such good news. That is an incredible benefit. That means I do not have to live in fear. I do not have to live in fear that I'm going to someday do some sin down the line somewhere that's going to make me wrong with God, not right. In Christ, I've been declared righteous for all eternity. Would you consider that a pretty good benefit? Just wanna take a vote here, make sure you're with me right now. That's a good one, right? But that's not all. Number two, secondly, uh, Paul says, I have peace with God. Because of our justification by faith, the next thing he says is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you, if you're underlying or circling, I want you maybe to to emphasize that word with. It's peace with God. We need to be clear about this. Paul here is not talking about some kind of subjective feeling of, of calm. It is an objective reality that Christ's death has created for us, a peace with God, because we're justified, because we're made right with God, we are now at peace with him. And because we're at peace with God, now we can experience the peace of God, that subjective sense of calm. And it's so crucial, I think, that, that we see this because so many people in our culture today think that the purpose of religion is to just give us all you know, therapeutic feelings of peace. That's what Religion is about, spirituality is all about. You've probably had coworkers, maybe you've had neighbors, maybe it's even family who have said something like that, this to you. They've said, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's good, it's nice that, that your faith, your Christianity gives you peace, but I, I get those feelings in other ways. I get them, you know, when I'm in the mountains or when I go to the ocean or when I do yoga or I meditate or maybe like when I exercise or drink bourbon or you know, rub essential oils on my lymph nodes. That's how I get my peace. And Paul, 
Paul wants us to know the peace of God. He actually does. You can uh, look up Philippians 4, 6, and 7, verses that many of us have memorized. He wants us to have that peace, that feeling of peace, but far more important than any feelings of peace is whether or not we actually have peace with God. I mean, just think about it like this. Which scenario would you rather be true in your life. You go to the doctor with a headache and he does some tests, he examines you and, and then he tells you, you know, it's no big deal, you're gonna be fine. Take some Tylenol. Would you rather have that? Or you go to the doctor and you say, I'm feeling great, doc. I'm just here for a routine checkup. He examines you and he tells you, well, I'm sorry to let you know you have a brain tumor. See, our subjective feelings of peace should not be what determines our life. And the reason, when you look at this benefit, that that Paul mentions it is not everyone has it. I mean, just think about it. Look around, the people you know. Would you say that most people have peace in their lives? I think the answer is obviously no. People are not at peace. That's why there's so much trouble in the world. That's why people do so many of the things that they do. They don't have peace. And the reason, ultimately, that people don't have peace peace is they don't have peace with God. And the reason they don't have peace with God, according to the Bible, and we're going to see this even more clearly next week, is that they are still God's enemy. Have you ever thought about that when you're apart from Christ, you're God's enemy? A lot of people would say, I don't agree with that. I mean, they would say, I'm cool with God. I'm, I'm not his enemy. But see, the problem is God's not cool with you. And that's what Paul has been establishing for most of the first three chapters. You know, Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20. We've mentioned that passage, that section so many times as we've studied it in detail. We're all sinners. That's what Paul is establishing. And because we're all sinners, we all deserve God's judgment. We're all under God's wrath. And you see, whether you realize it or not, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus with God through Jesus, which means that you are still living as if you're in charge of your life, which means that you are still in your sin, then God's word says that you are God's enemy. Let's think about it like this. God, by definition, is the sovereign creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. And when you sin, and live in sin, you are refusing to submit to his reign as king. And that is because you want your kingdom, not his. You, in your sin, have set yourself in opposition to him, and we've all done that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. And so, as a result, apart from Christ, there's hostility between you and God. And as long as there's that hostility, you can never have a a true soul peace. But Paul has been talking about this. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God justifies you. God makes you right with him. And from that moment on, you will always have peace with God. There's no uh, opposition anymore. You know peace in your heart. I'm gonna stop for a moment and just say this really clearly to some of you. Maybe you're here today and you have never, ever in your life trusted Christ 
entered into a relationship with him, repented of your sins, received by faith his salvation. You've never been right with God. And as a result, you don't have that peace. And I'm willing to say, I think you know that. Circumstances in your life may cause you even more anxiety and what your go-to is you think if I just change my circumstances, that's gonna bring me true peace. But I want you to hear today, Paul is saying it is only a relationship with God that will ever bring you the peace you're looking for. It's an incredible thing. Many of you know this. I will say to you, I I know this by God's grace. It is an incredible thing to be able to get up in the morning, every morning, and know today, no matter what happens, I have peace with God. And anyone can have that. Anyone who wants to can know that. Now, I understand uh, it is also true that some of you who actually do have that, you've been made right with that, you still sometimes struggle with that because you don't always feel Peace. And the thing I would say to you today is this, you need to learn to live according to the truth of what God's word says, not according to how you feel. Believe your way, in other words, into your feelings. Don't feel your way into belief. I don't have that on the screen, but some of you should write that down because it'll change your life. Believe your way into your feelings, not feel your way into your belief. See, God has promised us in Christ, we have peace with him. Uh, There's an author uh, named J.D. Greer, a pastor um, in another state who's uh, written a book and uh, on the gospel, and he's, he's got a thing he calls a gospel prayer. This is part of it. I just want to read it to you. I want you to listen to it. Maybe it'll be something that will help you, but this is something you can lean on when you don't feel the peace that you actually have. He, part of this prayer is this. In Christ, there is nothing I could do that would make God love me more and nothing I have done that could make God love me less. Nothing I'll ever do could ever make God love me more or love me less. And and to be able not only to get up every morning, but to go to bed every night and put your head on the pillow and no matter what is happening in your world or in this world, to know I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a benefit. Now, pretty amazing so far, right? But there's even more Now look what he says next, third benefit. He says, I live in grace. Still in verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And and so here you need to understand that this word grace in this context, what Paul's talking about here is this, is more of an idea of favor with God. And it's a favor with God that we possess because of the new relationship that we have with God because we've been made right with God and we're at peace with God. We live in grace. We, if you can think of it like this, we, we live in the realm of grace. We breathe the air of grace. We drink the water of grace. We eat the food of grace. We live in grace. We stand in grace. We never put this grace behind us. And grace is not just for yesterday when you trusted Christ. It is for today. It is for tomorrow. It is for forever. We stand in grace, and when you stand in grace, this, this benefit, as I'm calling it, it just changes how we approach God. We, we, we can approach God 
with this confidence, the, the confidence that a child has when they are with a parent and they know that the parent loves them unconditionally. You see, the Bible tells us we have God as our father and Jesus as our brother and the Holy Spirit living within us as our divine comforter. We live in grace. See, we don't, we, we don't just have you know, periodic access to the king. We live in the palace as the kids of the king. Tim Keller is a pastor. Uh, many of you have read some of his books, I think. You probably know that uh, the week before last, he passed away after a three-year bout with cancer, he has a great thing that he says, and he says this, it goes like this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child of the king. And we have that kind of access. See, it is one thing to be right with God as judge, but it is a whole nother level of privilege to have access to God as father, right? In J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, he, he asked this. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father, Packer says that, that one of the ways you can really know how much someone actually gets Christianity is, 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 in, is in terms of how much they think about and how much they value and cherish this thought of God as their father, this reality of being God's child. He says, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook in life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. I want to get real practical with this for a moment. I want you to think about this in light of this question. What's the way you generally feel when you pray? How do you feel about God when you pray? Do you enter into prayer tending to feel maybe more often than not that God kind of disapproves of you, at least today? You know God loves you, but you're not so sure he actually likes you. Do you sometimes feel like God's not listening, that he's not interested in your life? Or do you enter into prayer believing, no matter what you feel, believing that he is a kind and patient father who could not love you any more than he does? You know, sometimes people will come and tell me that they didn't have a dad like that. Their dad was dysfunctional or maybe abusive, something not you know, really good. They didn't grow up with that. And so it's kind of hard for them to see God uh, as a good father. And, and I understand that at a human level. But as I've told you before, I want to say it again. Don't look at God through the lens of your earthly father. You need to see your earthly father through the lens of the reality of your heavenly father. Always remember that whatever your earthly father's failings, your heavenly father is the father that you have always yearned for. And he is good. There's so much in the Bible that tells us this. Psalm 139 tells us that he is a father who knows everything about you every day from the moment you get up until the moment you go to sleep. You are never out of his care. It doesn't matter where you go. He is gonna be there for you. Just read Psalm 139 if you need to understand more about that. Zephaniah 317, I mentioned this verse recently, says we have a father who is with you and who is mighty to save, who takes great delight 
in you? Do you think of God taking delight in you? The, the, uh, the prophet Zephaniah goes on to say that God actually rejoices over you with singing. Is that anywhere in your frame of reference that your God sings over you? That's what God's word says. Jesus told this story. We know it well, the parable of the prodigal son. And he says, we have a father who after we rejected him and ran the other way, we despised him. We, 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 we rejected all of his goodness toward us. That father has patiently waited every day for you to come home. And when he saw you coming back, he ran to meet you. That's our father. That's what Paul is, is telling us, that we are right with God and we are at peace with God and that we have the favor of God. God could not love you any more than he does right now and you should relate to him and pray to him and live in his presence with that faith and knowledge. And when you do, then you get to experience more and more of the fourth benefit, which is this, I hope in the glory of God. Verse two, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sometimes people get confused about this word hope, and in the Bible, in the New Testament, hope is not wishful thinking, right? As we saw the last couple of weeks in Romans 4, looking at Abraham's life, hope, hope is the firm confidence that God always keeps his promises. That's hope. And our future hope is assured. And, and Paul is going to keep telling us that our hope is, is tied to what has already happened. The, it is rooted right here, he would say, in the resurrection. And Paul, later on in Romans, is going to tell us more that the resurrection, it demonstrates for us that one day God will restore everything that's broken in this world. That's our hope. You see, when all is said and done, if nothing else in my life goes right, and sometimes some of us feel like that's the reality, isn't it? If nothing else in my life goes right, then if I know Jesus Christ enough, I'm in him, I can have this assurance that there is a resurrection coming. D.A. Carson, one of my PhD professors, a man with who's an amazing scholar. He's just an incredible intellect. Uh, he put it like this, and this is really straightforward. It's so simple, so clear. Even uh, the Raider fans we have here are gonna understand it. Um, he said, come back to me now. Sorry about that. I can't, pray for me, please. You know, I just, I have these, you know, sins in my life sometimes, but Dr. Carson said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. You want me to say that again? He said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. See, this is just a reality in this world, right? Some of us know it more right now than others. But eventually, in all of our lives, stuff goes wrong. Amen? We face disappointment. People die. I, I don't want to be depressing today. Some of us know this more than others, but every day our bodies are getting older, right? 
I mean, I know some of you are young and you're strong today and you don't understand what I'm talking about and I actually hate you um, <laughs> because you wake up in the morning and you don't hurt, right? You know, how many of you wake up every morning and like, I hurt? That's just like, that's what you start the day with. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And some of us, we were young once and we used to run and we could run faster and longer if we trained and we could work out and we get stronger and stronger. And we used to keep track of, you know, all the stuff that we could do. You know, you could keep track of the weights you could lift and, you know, but that's not the way it is anymore for some of us. I mean, I'm not at the age anymore where you measure your physical fitness like this. I'm at the age where you assess your physical fitness like when you get out of the shower, you stand in front of a full-length mirror and you stomp your foot real hard and you hit a stopwatch and when everything starts jiggling, that's (laughs) when you click the watch and you know. In other words, (laughs) some of you don't want to have that image in your mind. Just (laughs) by the grace of God, wash it away. But here's what I'm talking about. It's not getting better, right? See, at some point, God is not not answering that prayer for your body to get better, right? At some point, everything falls apart. And for some of us, and I understand this, this is very serious, the cancer isn't going away, and we know that God can heal, and we will keep praying that he does, but sometimes in his sovereign wisdom and goodness, he doesn't do it. Sometimes it doesn't go away. God doesn't stop the aging process. And the marriage might never be restored. And people who leave you, they don't come back. The person who has sinned against you may never face justice in this world. And Paul is telling us that all those things, they don't mean that we're without hope. And the reason he can say that is that he wants us to know we are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And because of that, Paul says, I can rejoice. He says, I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this is so amazing. Just to think about it, we who once scorned God's glory, go back to Romans 1, verses 21 to 23 to look this up. We who once scorned God's glory, we now share in God's glory. See, what's the glory of God? Maybe you struggle to understand that, but think of it maybe this way. Glory is God's power. It is God's beauty. It is God's majesty. It is God's holiness. It's like all of the characteristics of God all put together. And one day, here's the promise. Here's the hope. One day we will see and we will know his glory. 1 John 3, 2 tells us that when we are with him finally in eternity, we will see Jesus and we will be just like him. We will know his glory. We're gonna have total peace, total shalom. We're, we're gonna live forever in indescribable beauty, what, what Jonathan Edwards calls a, a world of love. That's heaven. Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 24, that his followers would see his glory. He wants us to see his glory. He wants to deliver us from this body of death. And we actually now have this hope inside of us. That's the promise of the word of God. Colossians 1.29 says, Christ in you, you know the rest of it? The hope of glory. 
It's already in you if you are in Christ. It is there. Well, this all is an amazing package of benefits, you would agree, right? And, and it, it leads to what's next, verses three through five, where Paul tells us four ways that my benefits can change me. And they're, they're really all about how we respond to suffering. And I want you to just say this. This is what we need, right? How many of you need more advice on how to live a fulfilling life when you have all the money you want and everybody's healthy and the Dodgers are losing all their games and the weather is perfect. We don't need help on that, do we, right? We need help when we suffer. And that's what Paul is gonna give us. He he, he says all of these ways that that these benefits change us are all connected uh, to how we suffer and how we can learn to rejoice even in our suffering. And, And let me just show you these very quickly. He says, the first way my benefits change me, they just give me this power so that I can rejoice in suffering. That, that makes no sense to us, right? How do you rejoice in suffering? But that's what it says in verse three. How many of you like this verse? I don't like this verse. I just wanna stay with the hope and I, I kind of wanna feel like if I have enough hope, I'm gonna get there and I'm gonna one day experience, hopefully very quickly and very pain-free, you know, the love of God and glory. Boom, done. But Paul says it doesn't actually work like that. Life is hard. Jesus says that too, you know that, right? Jesus is so honest. He says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. You claim that promise lately? I'm claiming your promise today, Jesus, I will have trouble. It's a promise, it's there, it's gonna happen. He goes on to say, but take heart. In other words, don't give up hope. I have overcome the world. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And I love this last line, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, when we have this hope, you're not gonna be embarrassed about it. You're never gonna look back on this kind of hope in your life and go, ugh, why did I hope in that? Why are you not gonna be ashamed? And Paul answers in verse five, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, he's just telling us you're gonna face suffering persecution, you're gonna face disease, you're gonna face unemployment, and all and on and on. We learned these last few years about a new thing we're gonna face, and that's a pandemic. Never saw that one coming, did you? We face suffering. And Paul is saying when we face suffering, we have the choice, and that choice is to rejoice. In James 1, verse 2, it says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider, in other words, think about it. It's a a choice. But Paul is not saying, and I want to be really clear on this, that you have to smile and laugh and, and joke all the time you're suffering. That's called denial. Not what the Bible's talking about. We we don't rejoice because of suffering. Paul says we rejoice, what's the word in? Our sufferings, and there's a big difference. I am choosing to rejoice even though I am in 
suffering. So how do I do that? How, how does that happen? And the, reason, the way it happens, the way I can do it is because I learn, and this is what Paul's gonna show us, that rejoicing in suffering leads to something very valuable. That's the second thing. Second way my benefits change me, I allow suffering to produce endurance. That's what Paul is saying in verse three. Now again, I wanna be clear, Paul is not a masochist. He's not saying we rejoice in pain for the sake of pain. He is saying we rejoice in suffering because we know that our pain, no matter how great, with God's grace and power, it can produce something in us that is of greater value than a pain-free life. Do you believe that? That's what Paul's saying. Another thing Paul is not saying, he's not telling us to be Stoics. See, a Stoic is someone who is detached who has kind of trained themselves to be unmoved by pain. Uh, in case you wonder about this, just let me be clear, that's Buddhism, not Christianity. <clears throat> Buddhism teaches you not to feel pain and to not feel pain by detaching yourself from the world and, and in the end, not really loving anything. But Christianity pushes you into the world to experience it, to feel it, to love it, to know its pain more deeply. I mean, just think about Job. Job, who, after he lost his family and lost his health and lost his wealth, you can read this in Job 1. It's all there in one chapter. He rips his clothes apart, which is a sign of great grief. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground. He's expressing his grief and the anger, everything that he's going through. And yet in verse 22 of Job 1, it says, in all these things, Job sinned not. See, many Christians, including some of you, if you saw someone like Job doing this, you would say, well, Job, you need a little faith recharge. You must not be trusting in God, Job. You need to pray more. You obviously love the world too much, Job. You, you need to let go and let God. But the word of God says, Job, sin not. See, we don't go through life like a Buddhist. We can feel the pain. Maybe we even rage at God sometimes, but we keep trusting in God because we know that even in pain, God is up to something that is ultimately good, and some of the good that he is up to is gonna happen in you. He's changing you. That's what Paul's talking about. Suffering can produce endurance. Notice in verse three, Paul says, we know this. Did you see that? We, we know this. Paul is saying endurance is the ability for us to just keep going when we are experiencing no other earthly benefit from our faith. Do you know endurance in your life? Sometimes suffering is a test. Will you keep going when nothing is working out? Will you keep going because God is enough for you? Corey Tinboom, who survived a Nazi concentration camp, once famously said, I never knew God was all I needed until God was all I had. We need to be honest with ourselves. We really have it so easy in this country. That, that's part of the reason, if I'm looking back over the last three years, part of the reason why the pandemic 
was so hard for, for many of us. You know, a lot of people around the world would look at what we went through, you know, in the last three years and just say, you know, your last few years, 2020 for you, that's just, that's just the 21st century for us. It's always like this. And a lot of Christ followers have really have bought into a false theology that it teaches if you just love God enough and serve God enough, then your life is gonna be comfortable. And Paul resoundingly says, no, no, suffering is part of the Christian life. He would remind us, our Lord and Savior, our Master Jesus Christ suffered. Why would we think it would be different for us? And we don't like this. But Paul says we know this. We know that the hard times in life can bring good things in us, suffering produces endurance. It, it, it works that way with our physical bodies, doesn't it? Sometimes we train and exercise and we can do all the things that we're supposed to do for a long time and it seems like nothing is happening. But if you notice when you do this, if you keep going, you stick to it, that suddenly, all of a sudden, one day, it all starts to seem to come together and you're healthier and you're stronger and things are, are, are better for you in your life. And it didn't feel like that while you were going through it, but your body was changing, your body was growing. This is what God does spiritually. He takes us through hard times and suffering. And in that suffering, as we endure, we develop this endurance, this resilience that suddenly brings growth. I think spiritually, a lot of times, we're like cheetahs. You know, that animal, that cat, like the fastest animal on earth that can run 70 miles an hour. If you know anything about the cheetah, the cheetah has kind of a weakness, and that weakness is its body is so sleek, its heart is very small. And so while it can explode up to 70 miles an hour, it can't go that way very long. It's a sprinter. That's all. A lot of Christians have trained themselves to be like cheetahs, and we love to rise in the moment, hit it hard, immediately conquer, see God work, and we want it all to be over with, but God says life doesn't work that way. And you can lose pretty hope, uh, hope pretty quick if you think it does. Life suffering often goes on and on and on. And maybe it's part of the reason why we struggled so much in the last few years. Paul wants to remind us that God is doing something good in our life, that our benefits can lead us to grow in this way. Here, here's a third way our benefits change us, and it's just following along. Follow the logic of what Paul is saying. He says, as I endure, God changes my character. Endurance leads to real change in our character. God starts doing something in us, and that's a reason why we can rejoice. That's a reason why we can endure in suffering, and it's not necessarily that my circumstances are changing, but I'm changing. I'm becoming a different person. I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm growing in my ability to love others better. I'm displaying the fruit of the Spirit more and more. God is using all these things in my life, even my suffering, even my failures. He's using them to build hope. In 2014, Naval Admiral, Bull, uh, Admiral uh, William McRaven uh, gave the commencement address at the University of Texas, and it quickly became very famous. I checked it this week. There's over 17 million views of this on YouTube. It's this great speech. He's got 10 points. And one of them was this. He says, don't be afraid of the circus. And here's what he meant. He's a former Navy SEAL. 
And he said, when you're in Navy SEAL training, you have these performance goals every day and you have to do all these calisthenics and swimming and running. And if, if you don't meet that day's goals, then you get assigned to the circus. And the circus was an extra two hours of calisthenics at the end of the day. And it was designed expressly to break you down and to weed people out. And he said in the speech, everyone, everyone has to face the circus at one point or another. And he said, it's interesting that some people who had to go through it the most were the ones that got the strongest. In other words, their failure actually led to stronger bodies and stronger character. Well, listen to his closing words. He says this, I quote, life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times it will test you to your core, but if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circus. See, when God has called you to a time of suffering, you don't need to be afraid when you're having to endure longer than you thought it would be. Don't be afraid because you know he's changing your character. He's making you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Have you seen God do that? You know, sometimes God is dealing with some problems in our lives. You should check out this first Psalm 119.71. I don't have it on the screen, but it says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Has that ever happened in your life? You disobeyed, you went astray, and God sent suffering into your life, and it brought you back. Maybe the suffering, the pain you're going through, it's not true every time, but maybe sometimes God is just trying to free you from something that is ultimately negative. Maybe he's trying to free you from independence to an idol. Maybe sometimes he's even stripping out good things from your life, even though there's really nothing wrong with those things, in order to take you to a place where he is all you need, where he's sufficient from you. It may be that he's just trying to show you that truth. I don't know if you've ever heard about the ancient uh, Japanese uh, practice of, and I, I think this is how you say the word, I'm not sure, kintsugi. It's the Japanese word for golden repair. And, and what they sometimes do is they make this vase, beautiful vase with all this painting decoration on it, and then they shatter it into a thousand pieces. And then after shattering it, they put the vase back together only they put it together with all these seams of gold that holds the entire vase together and the flaws add to the value because the flaw has become this unique aspect of the object's history and it adds to the beauty. In other words, in this case, suffering allows God to infuse the gold of his presence into the broken seams of your life. And it is in that process that we have the hope of glory. And this is how he, he caps this whole thing, this whole process of our faith that grows. He says, as my character deepens, so does my hope. And that's the last thing. It's a hope that doesn't put us to shame. I mentioned that earlier. Why is that the case? It's because the love of God is the umbrella over all of it. Because if God 
the Father loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. That's next week. You wanna be back to hear that. If God did that, can't we trust him now in this process of life? Can't we maintain hope for what's ahead because we know what our Father has already done for us? So I wanna leave you with this question I want you to ponder it this week. Where is your hope? You see, every other hope you have in life will ultimately let you down. Let me say that again. Every other hope that you have in life will ultimately let you down. And Paul is telling us here that there is only one hope that satisfies. There is only one hope that enables us to endure. There is only one hope that will allow us to make it through. And that hope is the hope of glory in Jesus. That's your only hope. God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And so we, were, we will live in love and we're never away from his love even when we can't feel it. Now we're gonna talk more about why we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true next week. And I think as we look at the next few verses next week, we're gonna gain an even deeper understanding of these ultimate benefits that we have in Jesus because we have been justified in God's sight. But I again want to leave you with this question, where's your hope? Where's your hope? Is your hope in Jesus? Jesus is our only hope. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, we thank you we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we, we thank you for a passage like this that is so clear. And even though, Lord, it's not the process we would choose, we, we believe that it is the process you've designed. And, and so, Lord, I pray that each of us would embrace that process and that we would grow in our trust and in our hope that our faith would be in you. Lord, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, even when we suffer. Help us to rejoice. Help us to endure. Help us to see you changing our character to becoming more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us always, Father, to hope. We, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise because we know that you are so good, even in those times where we don't feel it. And we pray, Father, all these things in Jesus' name. All God's people together said.